Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we're gonna be talking about the state of real estate investing as we come to the end of 2023 and head into 2024. To help this discussion, we have Kathy Fecky, Henry Washington, and James Daynard joining us. Thank you all for being here as always. We really appreciate it. How are you guys feeling right now? Just give me a quick summary, Kathy. What's your feeling about 2024? Are you feeling optimistic? I am. Yeah, I think uh, more and more people are getting used to the new normal, and that's what they've been waiting for. They were sort of wondering what would happen, and I think we have a better idea. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, if you had to name one thing you're going to be looking at going into 2024 to make some decisions about, what would that be? 
the the word for me in 2024 is growth. It is a scary time because there is still some uncertainty, even though we're starting to see some things kind of flatten out and maybe feel more normal. But um, I am trying to follow the Warren Buffett principles this year, which is be greedy when everybody else is fearful. And so we are focused on doubling our portfolio in 2024 Ooh. to take advantage of what seems to be a great time to get lower prices. Awesome. What about you, James? What's the what do you think the key to 2024 is going to be? You know, I'm I'm really excited for 2024. 2023 was kind of a flat year, and especially when you're doing development and in longer projects, you had to kind of get through the muck. So 2024 is the year of the reset where you just got to reset all your deals in 2023 and then you get to see the 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 reward in it in 2024. So I think it's going to be a really, really strong rebound year um, for people that didn't get on the sidelines. If you got on the sidelines, 2024 is going to be lame. <laughs> All right, I like it. <laughs> Call it like it is. Well, for me, the word of 2024 is affordability. I just think of all of the economic indicators of all the data that we look at. Housing affordability is what I think is going to drive the market next year. If prices, you know, if mortgage rates stay around where they are, I think we'll have a sort of a boring year, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I think prices being, you know, up a little bit, maybe down a little bit, boring year would be a great thing. But we obviously don't know which way things are heading. Obviously, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen mortgage rates go down a little bit, but there is still a risk that they go back up. And if there's a serious recession or big uptick in unemployment, we could see rates go down pretty significantly, and that might supercharge the market. And so for me, what I'm going to be looking at most closely is affordability. So that's just obviously one of my many opinions about the housing market right now. If you want to understand my full thoughts about the 2023 and 2024 housing market, I have a special treat for you. It is the State of Real Estate Investing 2024 report. If you guys remember last year, this is the time of the year where bigger pockets basically locks me in a room for a week or two and just makes me dump everything I've talked about over the last two year or two into a single report. And then we give it away for free. It's filled with all sorts of context, advice, tips. And there's actually a download where we're going to rank all of the markets in the country based on affordability. So you can check that out. If you want to download it, go to biggerpockets.com slash report 24. That's biggerpockets.com slash report 24. And then in the rest of this episode, we're going to discuss a couple of the tactics that I think are going to work well in 2024 with the rest of the crew here. I used to think working from home was the dream until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com slash industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's biggerpockets.com slash industrious and use promo code pockets after clicking join now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious. It's where your best work happens. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, let's just jump into this. So the first tactic that I wrote is kind of true all the time, but I personally think it's just super important right now, which is underwriting conservatively. I think in an environment where things are as uncertain as they are now, it's better to be pessimistic. Like I'm usually sort of an optimistic person, but I think right now I'm trying to underwrite deals pessimistically. Henry, you're trying to double your portfolio. So tell us how you're going to underwrite deals next year. <laughs> With extreme caution. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> yeah, uh, I think this is, you're right. This is something everybody needs to pay attention to all the time. But when a market is as unforgiving as the market is now, meaning if you screw up, your screw ups are magnified in this market. You know, three years ago, you could make a mistake. And as long as you sat around for another six months, then your value's gone up by 50, 60, 70 grand, right? And it's just not that way anymore. If you screw up now, you're really getting your teeth kicked in. And so uh, the focus on underwriting uh, conservatively, I've always underwrote my deals conservatively. But one thing I have made a change in uh, underwriting is previously, I wouldn't factor too much into my underwriting for holding costs because I'm doing single families. It's paint, it's floors. I got crews. We can get them in and out of there. Like it just wasn't that big of a deal to me mm -hmm. um, because I knew we could get a property turn. Like we're, it's, it's my bread and butter. And so if a deal penciled, uh, even without, you know, a massive holding cost, uh, calculation in there, then I was typically buying it. Uh, I do not do that anymore. That's good advice <laughs> because money is more expensive in general. So when I was underwriting a deal a couple of years ago, right, if, if I could get money at two, three, four, 5%, like it's way cheaper than now, sometimes I'm getting money at 11 and 12%. And so that monthly payment goes up drastically. And so then it magnifies any delays you have in terms of delays on your construction. And it also in terms of delays on just normal things that cause delays. Sometimes there's just closing just takes a while because maybe there's a title issue or maybe there's some paperwork. Like all of these little things that you wouldn't think about before are now costing you a lot of money. And so you want to make sure on the front end that you 
calculate, specifically calculate what it is that you think your holding costs are going to be. So that's your cost of money, but also your cost of utilities. Utilities are more expensive than they used to be as well. And so you really kind of have to get meticulous about and be realistic with yourself about how long you think a project's going to take. If you are brand new and you are buying your first, you know, bird deal or your first fix and flip and you've got a, you know, 90 day rehab uh, window in your in your underwriting. Yeah. Add two months <laughs> because you've never done yeah. this before. Right. And you might spend that first 30 days just trying to find a contractor who will even do the job. Like there's just so many things that would be tedious things you would overlook that you have to really consider now in terms of what are your true holding costs and that cost of money, because it'll eat away your profits super quick. That That's great advice. I, I really like that. All right. So Kathy, coming at it from a more of a buy and hold perspective, you know, are you underwriting rents to grow, property values to grow? How are you thinking about things? You know, we are not changing our underwriting. It's the same old deal. It's buy and hold. And we're, we we need the property to cash flow. I want it to grow in value. So I want to be in areas that have potential for that. Potential for that would be areas where there's jobs moving in, where there's infrastructure growth, uh, population growth, migration patterns. Uh, and then as long as it cash flows, then I'm good because it's a long-term play. So it's a little different, obviously, than a fix and flipper who needs to know what the market's going to be like in two or three or six months. And based on your report and what we're seeing, there are areas of the country where we're still seeing rent growth, we're still seeing price growth, and those are the areas... I'm going to be in and I'm just keeping things like they've been for 20 years. <laughs> Absolutely. So Kathy, what do you make of this? I hear a lot of people talking about these days that like things don't need a cash flow in year one, that, you know, rents will grow and things will get better. Do you buy into that? Absolutely, because your your costs are higher in year one. You're, you're paying closing costs. Your rents are most likely the lowest they'll ever be if you're buying right and in the right markets and estimating those rents properly. Then, uh, you know, you're, you're going to probably over time, and I do mean over time, see those rents go up. It might not be next year. It might but not be the year after and the markets were in, it probably will be. But over time, what do you think those rents are going to be in five or 10 years? They're going to be higher, but you're in a fixed payment. So, you know, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm still bullish on the same long-term 10-year, 15-year plan. That's the goal. What about you, James? You said this is the year of the reset. Are you resetting all of your underwriting principles? Yeah, that was, I really liked what Henry had to say because it's, that is what is getting all investors is the debt and the soft costs that are that are compounding on people. And so, by, yes, we're adding a lot more hold times in and just more buffers. And, you know, underwriting, when people ask me, they're like, are you being more conservative? And yes, we definitely are. But, you know, the next question is always like, well, how much are you reducing the values? And, you know, and it's about those core principles of underwriting. We're not actually reducing the values because we are buying on today's value. How we're being protective in our underwriting is by adding, like what Henry said, an extra 25% in there for the debt cost, adding an extra 10% in to the construction budget and just adding buffers in, but we're not changing numbers around. So we're just making sure that the deals are a little bit fatter. The fatter they are, the more room you have or the more profit you potentially have. And honestly, honestly, we were being very conservative, adding these pads in, and now it's going to come to fruition in 2024. A lot of the deals that we performed nine months ago are now up substantially in value. 
because they recorrected and now we're going to be hitting five to eight percent above what we thought on our ARVs. That's great. And do you do you redo your underwriting? I like how frequently do you revisit these these ideas? Uh, in, in a more volatile market, we do it about once a month. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, because the market is always changing and the price points are moving around. You know, we all look at this as like nationwide or even statewide, but it's really citywide. And it's like, it's block wide. And, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're being really aggressive in some neighborhoods because there's good growth, no inventory and a high amount of buyer demand. We will be more aggressive in those neighborhoods, but maybe a neighborhood 20 minutes down the road, we might be way more conservative. And so you just really got to, uh, you got to get very specific neighborhood by neighborhood and time frame by time frame. All right. Very good advice. Well, actually, that's a good transition to the next tactical piece of advice here, which is focus on affordability. And I know that a lot of us assume that means focusing on affordability and affordable markets. But I think even within a specific market, my advice or what I see is that affordability is doing better, even if you're in an expensive market. So, James, let's stick with you. Are Do you buy that? Because Seattle, you know, the Pacific Northwest, obviously very expensive area. Mm-hmm. Are you focusing on more affordable things or are you still buying across the price spectrum? I think we're focusing on the affordability in our market, but it's not like we're not going to like cheaper price points by the nationwide median home price. There's definitely blocks of the market that are selling really well. And it's not just about the affordability, about it's about what the product is. If you have a really good product that people feel like they can be in there for five, 10 years, that's priced in the middle, that stuff is flying off the shelf because they're not as worried about the short term. They're, they're looking at more as the long term. So we're really focusing on what appeals to the masses, bedroom, bathroom counts, size of lots. Is it livable? That is more what we're targeting than the affordability. Now, chances are those are all going into the affordable price range of us. You know, like we have certain blocks like 750 to 900 sells like crazy in Seattle. One one to one three sells like in Seattle. Above two million has gotten a lot flatter. So yes, we are staying away from that, but we want to target where the masses are, and that's why we're focused more on density, smaller units, more units, higher price per square foot on a single lot, and that's been trading a lot better. That's a really good point, James. That affordability is relative. Obviously, you know Seattle is more expensive than almost all of the other markets in the country, but the median income in Seattle is also a lot higher than everywhere else in the country. And so what's affordable to people in Seattle might be very different from what's affordable in other markets. So even though the median home price in Seattle is well above the median that the average across the country, there are still places that feel relatively affordable to people who live in that metro area. Now, Henry, you're in a market that is was affordable. <laughs> is it still affordable? And and what's your strategy related to where you're searching in sort of the price spectrum? Yeah, uh, I would consider it still affordable. Yeah, the, the, I think the average home price is going up as more and more people continue to move to uh, the Northwest Arkansas area. Uh, but my business model has always been focused on affordability. I like single family and small multifamily real estate. Like that's my bread and butter. And the reason I got into it was because most people like it has the highest percentage of buyers in that first time home buyer market and um, the highest percentage of renters in that uh, lower tiered price point rent. And so um, it was just a numbers thing for me. Uh, you know, I, I want to be able to limit my risk by um, catering to the market that has the most buyers. 
and most renders. And that's more important now because as a whole, we're starting to see things are slowing down, especially with properties on the market for sale. So if you're going to have less buyers out there buying houses, I at least want to be able to market to the, uh, the majority of those buyers. And so we're definitely paying, we're definitely not taking risks on like luxury flips or, uh, or a class, uh, apartment buildings. Like that's just not my cup of tea right now. Nice. Okay. Good to know. Kathy, I feel like you're like the affordability evangelist and have been for <laughs> It's <laughs> for my jam. Years. That's just your jam. So educate us. <laughs> well, on a buy and hold uh, viewpoint, you want to attract renters, right? And so you want to have the biggest pool of renters. So if you buy in the affordable range, and, and to me, that's the most people who can afford what you have. You'd want to be right below the median because the median is what probably the average person can afford in that market. And if you're under that, then you've got a, you know, a bigger pool. So a lot of people have the false belief that affordable is like low income areas. And that's not what I mean at all. It's just simply that it's people in the area can afford your product. They can afford to live where you are. So you just have a big, bigger pool of renters. Plus, you know, from a, from a vision perspective and purpose, we're solving a need. Builders aren't really able to build affordable housing today. It's really hard. It's, I know I, we're trying. It's, it's hard. And, and so if you can do it by buying an older house, renovating it, making it feel like new, then you're, you're, again, you're solving a problem of people who would like to have a nice place to live. They probably make a pretty decent income, but just, you know, need an affordable place. And yeah, so that's, that's, again, we're not changing our underwriting. That's what we've always done. We look for the median price of the area and we stay just underneath that. That's great. Yeah. And I just want to clarify why I think personally believe affordability is going to dictate the market is, you know, when you look at the variables that are impacting what's going on right now, there's a lot of strong inherent demand, like demographics are positive. People still need places to live. Of course, the thing that's slowing down the market so much to the point where we're at about 50% of home sales that we were two years ago is that affordability is low. And so people demand leaves the market because people just can't buy. But personally, I believe that in markets that are relatively more affordable, they're just going to be more resilient. Like they're just not as sensitive to interest rate fluctuations because they, people are already more comfortable and able to pay for it. They're not stretching as much. And so if interest rates go up 25 basis points, it doesn't matter as much. Of course, of course it matters, but it's just not going to have the same aggregate effect. All right. So here's the third piece of advice. And we've already talked about this uh, a, a little bit. And actually, before I say what it is, let me just get a quick reaction for you. Henry, when people ask you cash flow or appreciation, what do you say back to them? Yes. Okay, good. And just so you know, like I, I don't know if everyone listening to this hears this, but I feel like it's just this debate, like cash flow versus appreciation, which one's more important. So, so Henry just says, yes, he wants it all. Kathy, what's your opinion on this? Same. <laughs> yes, yes, please. Okay. Um, but I'm less 
it, it, again, it depends on your stage in life. And even though I'm getting older, I still am building a portfolio for a time when I won't be working at all. So to me, it's not so much about the cash flow today. I don't need the cash flow today, but I need the investment to cover itself and hopefully have some cash flow to cover reserves and issues that come. But I'm really looking long term. This is, you know, 10 years from now when maybe I'll still probably want to be working. But if I did, Kathy, you're going to be hosting this podcast in 10 years. We are not letting you retire. Yes, I'll be here. But you know, it's just kind of having that optionality and. Um, so if you are at a stage in life where you don't want to work and you don't like your job, then cash flow is going to be much more important. But you have to have money to cash flow. And that's mm-hmm. that's the confusion. People think they can just cash flow right away with no money. And it just doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. you got to build the portfolio. Um, I, I usually look at it like you need a million dollars to invest it to you know, to have a $70,000 salary, you know, income or, mm-hmm. or even less, you know. So 100%. anyway, you, you've got to know your goal. And if you have that, if you inherited a million or you have a couple of million, yeah, go find yourself some cash flow and you might be able to just not work. But until then, it's going to take a while. <laughs> James, I know where you stand on this. You're just, you're just all equity, right? <laughs> Give me the juice. The equity. The equity is the juice in the deal. I love what Kathy said. I will always be a juice guy in an guy <laughs> until it's just until, monster. That's my other jungle juice. Uh, but it's uh, <laughs> until I'm ready for financial freedom and to get that passive income, kick the cash flow down the road, get the appreciation, keep rolling it, stack it, and grow it. Um, that has always been my yeah. my juice. I want to add some color to this as somebody who's kind of a you know small you know kind of self investor, which is I think what most people listening to the show probably are. I get it, like cash flow and appreciation. You want to buy cash flow. Uh, here's what I've learned as a real estate investor: that cash flow is a myth because you know one bad maintenance item in your property can eat up your whole year's worth of cash flow. Now. A lot of people get into this because they want to retire off cash flow, right? They want to replace their job income with cash flow. That was easier to do when interest rates were lower. It's not as easy to do now. I still think you should buy something that cash flows. I'm not saying go buy a bad deal, but real wealth is not built through cash flow. Like everybody who is a real estate investor who's now looking to retire, they got wealthy off equity and appreciation and holding onto their properties for the long term. So we, you know, you just have to keep that into perspective. Don't go buy bad deals, but don't, what's the phrase? I always get it wrong, but it's like, you know, you step over a dime or step over something to like, I think people get, pass up on a deal where they might make 60, 70, 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars in equity over a two to three year period because it only made them a hundred dollars cash flow when they underwrote it when they first were going to buy it. And I think that's shooting yourself in the foot. All right. Well, you, you got the second idiom right, at least the shooting yourself <laughs> in the foot. I don't know what that first one is either. It's like, like, Tripping over a penny to pick up a dollar. It's I always get it wrong. Tripping over a dollar to pick up a penny. I don't remember. It's something. (laughs) Anyway. Well, I like this having this conversation before I said what my tip was, because I think we might disagree on this. But the way I look at cash flow as appreciation is sort of as a spectrum. Like on one end of the spectrum, there's a pure cash flow deal that's probably not going to appreciate. On the other end of the spectrum, there's probably, you know, what James is talking about, like a, a flip that's like a luxury flip where you just build a ton of equity with no cash flow. And as Kathy said, where you land on that spectrum is very much dependent on where you are in life, your own risk tolerance, your resources, all these different things. 
for me, I'm always sort of been more towards the appreciation side of things. But I think in a correcting market, personally, I move more towards the cash flow side. And that's for two reasons. The first one is because even then, if the market goes down for a year or two, you're still earning a return on your money, right? So even if the market goes down 2% for a year or two, that's a paper loss, but you're still with amortization and cash flow earning a positive return, which is great. And the second one is, especially if you're new and this is your first investment, I think the most conservative thing to do in a time like this is to make sure that you don't have what's called forced selling. So the thing that you really want to avoid is selling the property before you want to, before you're ready to, and before it is the optimal time to. Like Kathy said, hold on, buy something and hold on to it. But if you don't cash flow and maybe you you lose your job, you might have to sell that property What during these like short-term volatile times in the housing market where it's down 2% or 4%. Whereas if you just cash flow and you can hold on to it for 10, 15, 20 years, that gives you more optionality. And so I agree with Henry saying that it's not how you're going to build wealth, but if you're concerned about the market right now and you want to be a little bit more defensive, particularly if you don't have a lot of other income to cover any shortfalls in a property, I, I recommend just making sure you have strong cash flow next year. But feel free to disagree, any of you. No, I think I agree. And and I assure you, those 10 years will pass. And I have made that mistake where we we had some negative cash flow properties in 2008. And it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun, especially when you saw the asset value go down. And so I, I am all about making sure that the expenses are covered and some so that you have extra money for future expenses, because there will be there. It's a business. There's going to be expenses. The only thing I would say about that is in a declining market or a market that could be you know, shifting down, there's a lot more fear behind it. The margins get substantially wider. For flipping. For flipping or even, you know, like your multifamily fixer property right now. On two to four units, the the, the rates are the worst, right? Commercial rates are better than a two to four unit by about a point. There's not that much buyer demand for it. People don't want to have to come up. They can't really make it pencil very well. And they also don't want to be negative on this higher uh, interest rate for a six to nine month period as they're turning that property. And so the demand for that has fallen so greatly that you can now walk in with 20, 25% margins after stabilizing the house on a small multifamily, which was not possible 24 to 36 months ago. Mm-hmm. You can get better cash flow because the rates were better, but you couldn't get that SWAT. And you know that's the only thing is like what Henry said in the beginning, when people are fearful, the margins get bigger. And so that's why I'm still always going to be an equity guy. He's a juice guy. I mean, yeah. once a juice guy, always a juice guy. <laughs> once you taste the juice, man. <laughs> well, that actually brings up my next point because one of my my things, and I, just to be honest, I am not a flipper. I've I've done some renovations, but not whole, not the kind of stuff you you do, James, or you do, Henry. And so, to me, it, it looks riskier. So I'm curious. You know, that's one of my things is. Is to do it with caution, especially if you're new to it. I know that both of you have a lot of experience. You have systems in place. You know how to do this. But Henry, would you recommend people who are new to the value? Let's just call it like the value add game taking some big swings right now. No. <laughs> All right. Well, no. There we go. Uh, here, here's why. Like, so I don't think you shouldn't try to flip a property. Like, I think you can flip a property in any market. Um, it's more about you've got to make sure that you're buying an extremely good deal 
because if you're new and you're getting into the fix and flip game, you're going to screw up and you're going to make mistakes and you've got to have the cushion to cover those mistakes. Um, or else you could be, it's easier to buy a loser right now in this market and, and flip a loser because the cost of money is higher because there's less buyers out there buying the property once you're finished with it. And so you've really got to ensure that you're buying a really good deal. Um, and so you just got to be careful. Your deal has to be a good deal. And I wouldn't recommend anything that you're going to have to spend six, seven, eight months rehabbing like a gut job, right? You want to do something where you can, you know, paint floors, um, and, and put it back on the market fairly quickly. So I, I don't recommend you taking big risks in the flipping game. You want to do something that's going to be uh, easier to get that rehab done, that property turned around quicker and something with a second exit strategy. It's got to be able to cash flow as a rental property mm-hmm. too. Cause if you go to try to sell it and you don't get like right now, it's hard to predict. I've got properties that I thought should have been sold months ago and they're not. So, and I'm a seasoned investor. So you got to be able to pivot. Yeah. And you can also mitigate, you know, for new people getting a value add is risky and I don't advise heavy value add, but if you pivot how you're doing it, it's totally safe. You know, like right now we, Value add got harder. Construction got harder. We started partnering with generals and cutting them into the deal. And it's made it way simpler for us, way easier for us. They go faster. Our budgets are lower. And then actually by giving away 30% of the deal, we're actually making more money by not having staff costs, the overages and debt times. And we're getting in and out of the project quicker. So you just mitigate the risk and bring in partners, right? If you're new and you want to get into big margins, then partner with the right people. All right. Well, what about some alternative ideas? I, I I have a one that I suggested here that I think Kathy you recently employed. So my this other tactic that I'm uh, recommending is new construction, which is usually not a great prospect for uh, for real estate investors. But Kathy, why don't you tell us why you recently bought new construction? Well, uh, if you follow Warren Buffett, you know that he recently invested or Berkshire Hathaway invested, I think it was over $800 million in builder stocks, specifically in affordable um, with D.R. Horton, I believe it was. So uh, if you if you think that he might do his research, <laughs> he's taking the bet that, that inventory, that supply is needed, not that we're going to get flooded with supply, which means there's he doesn't think there's a housing crash coming. Mm-hmm. There's a an inventory crash. So that is kind of obvious to me, too. There is such a need for housing. And yet, it is still risky. It, it, construction is risky. We've had projects we've knocked out of the park with 30%, 40% annualized returns. And we have others where there were losses because you know, COVID sites were shut down, material costs soared. I mean, it's it, it's a tough, volatile market. So now, like like the guys were saying, being conservative is so important. So we're kind of back at a time where there is distress out there. And this is an opportunity. I'm sorry for anyone feeling distressed. Some of us are anyway, you know, with some of our projects, but it is also an opportunity. So we found a developer in distress. He uh, didn't wasn't an experienced developer, just had a bunch of money, bought a bunch of beautiful land in Oregon, uh, Klamath Falls on a lake. And uh, tried to develop it, got the horizontal and the roads, the the infrastructure, but couldn't get the project to the finish line. My partner, who's been developing for 40 years, was able to negotiate a lease option where we don't even have to buy the lots. We don't have to do any horizontal development. It's already done. We're just optioning it. And we're getting uh, the lots for half of what their current market value is. But we don't even have to pay for them until, until we you know the final buyer comes. So we've really mitigated risk by uh, being able to build on these homes 
and not have to acquire the land, which would be $10 million. I, you know, I'd have to raise $10 million and be paying interest on that. We don't have to. We're getting these lots for $60,000 and don't have to pay for them. The buyer pays at the end. So we're mitigating risk that way and yet providing much-needed housing in an area where you don't see builders flocking to Klamath Falls, Oregon. And yet there is a, a lot of actual job growth there in the military, uh, Air Force, and officers coming in, moving in who want housing. And why not have one overlooking a beautiful lake? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it just definitely seems like a great, great thing to be in if you can get into it right now. One of the other sort of alternative ideas here is something, James, I know you do a lot of, which is learning to be a lender or trying to lend out money. Why do you do it? Oh, because it's so easy. Because <laughs> <It's like, laughs> you spend 30 minutes vetting a deal, you click a button and the money goes out and you get paid. It's like, it's, it, there's well, no contract. Is that how it's, it is for everyone? <laughs> it's not like that for most, ask commercial lenders today. How <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It's, no, I mean, I love working money. I mean, I, me and Henry just did a loan this week and, you know, uh, it, it works out great because Henry gets to get his project done and gets him th- moving through, um, getting his goal for doubling his transactions this year and investors are looking for more capital. And as you have, what the reason I love working money is we have numerous businesses in the Pacific Northwest. We have eight that we run constantly. Those require a different amount of time at different businesses, depending on the cycle. And right now, what we're really focused on is reshaping our businesses, reformatting some. That takes a lot more time in the infrastructure and the organization of your business. And as you lose time, that means I have to spend less time. I have less time to go spend in the field on a flip property. And again, that's why we're bringing these generals as partners to free up time. But in addition to, because we might be buying a little bit less product, we have working capital that we can put to work. And that's why I love hard money in, in, in lending it out. It pays you a high yield return. You know when you're getting your capital back. It can't get locked up in theory if you underwrite the deal correctly. And it's this capital you make a good return on that you will have access to. I love having, I want to always know I have access to gunpowder if I really, really need it. Uh, if I get a home run crossing my plate, I want to have access to liquidity. And that's what hard money does for me. Um, and so it's it's a great business. And you're seeing it really get popular because running projects is not that fun right now. Construction is still unenjoyable. Working with wholesalers can be unenjoyable. Digging through hundreds amounts of deals before you find that gold one is can be unenjoyable. Hard money lending, again, not it's like vet it find the right people, wire the money out, you can go do whatever you want and it frees up a lot more time. He's so white collar now. Look at him, just looking <laughs> <laughs> on the computer. <laughs> yeah, beep, boop, beep, bop, make a million dollars. <laughs> well, uh, I am personally aspiring to learn and James has offered to to teach me how to do some of this. And I think we're actually gonna make an episode out of this. So oh, definitely- nice. Check that out because I know hopefully it's just clicking buttons like James says, but <laughs> I, I suspect there's a little bit more to it than that. So I, I would like to learn a little bit more details here. Henry, what about you? Do you have any other alternative strategies or things that you're pursuing this next year? We're going to focus a little more on midterm rentals. So I've okay. got... Uh, we're 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 about to launch our first midterm rental, and if it goes well, we're going to probably convert a few of my uh, other long term rentals to midterm rentals as the leases come due on those. 
So um, I've got a, a seasoned investor in my market who is doing uh, midterm and corporate rentals um, in a few of his properties. And I've uh, he's shown me the numbers and the occupancy rates and I'm, it's really impressive. And so we're going to give that a go. Uh, now, I'm not going to do it on properties that don't cash flow as a long-term rental. Like that's always my cover is if I need mm-hmm. to pivot, I can right. throw a tenant in it and it's still going to cash flow. Um, but, you know, part of growth in your business, in your real estate business, isn't always acquisition of more doors. Growth can be like, what can I do? How can I leverage my current portfolio to increase the cash flow that it has? Maybe I can make some repairs that give me a higher, you know, monthly rent. Maybe I can convert a long term into a midterm or a short term if you um, feel like you can operate that property properly. And then your your dollar, you're getting a higher percent on what you spend than if you go and buy something new. Dude, I'm so happy you said that. I feel like portfolio management is the single most overlooked part of real estate investing, like reallocating capital, figuring out, you know, if your current deals are performing at the right rate, if they're not, should you sell them? Should you switch tactics? Should you do something else? It's not talked about enough. So I love hearing uh, that you're doing that. It sounds like a great plan for next year. All right. Well, James, Kathy, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully this conversation has helped you all understand that you can invest in any market. It really is just about adjusting your tactics and choosing the right tactics that work given the current situation. If you want to learn more about the current situation and some potential ways that you can get involved in the market next year, make sure to download the report I wrote. I spent a lot of time on it. At least like a couple of you have to read it. So just go to biggerpockets.com slash report 24. You can download it for free right there. It's so good, Dave. Oh, thank you. It's so you. good. Yeah. You read loved it? loved reading it. Yeah. Oh, and my company wants me to, you. you know, sequester in an office and write mine for two weeks. <laughs> I'm just going to give them yours. <laughs> there you go. You just, just put a new logo on it or just send them all to bigger pockets. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all. Hopefully you guys enjoy it as well. And we'll see you for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down 
by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're gonna be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.